Hey, friends, John Johnson, the Albertus Magnus Institute. Pleased to bring you another recording from Father Carroll's Lectures at the Retirement Home. When your friends ask you what podcast you're listening to, you need to tell them, I'm really into this 93-year-old priest teaching at a retirement home. It's the most entertaining podcast in the world of podcasts. It really is. You'll see why here. This is Father Carroll, Liturgy, Authority, and Living Scripture for you. And if you like what you hear, you can buy his book, our inaugural inaugural publication on magnusinstitute.org and amazon.com. For you, this Lenten season, 20% off on Amazon. So check it out there. Just search Father Carol, Father Owen Carroll, Sufferings and Glory of Christ on Amazon. Magnusinstitute.org. For more, here's Father Carol on Liturgy, Authority, and Living Scripture. We'll begin. Uh, name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds, inflame our hearts, that uh, we may come through you to the great truth of the risen Christ, seated with the Father in the heavenly Jerusalem. May we all arrive there. Well, <clears throat> we've been slowly approaching Aquinas's first way, and I think the last time <clears throat> I had been commenting on the what is called the, the said contra. <clears throat> ah, here comes... Uh, Well, there was the said contra, which uh, is the beginning of Aquinas's answer to the two reasonable positions that we saw uh, concerning a world in which God would not be, in which we saw was to be described as hell. So with Aquinas, with the said contra, he's objecting to the two reasonable positions. And the said contra has many levels to it. And we'll just try briefly to differentiate the various levels. Now, the first big aspect concerning this is said contra is authority. And so I want to bring up a cluster of words concerning authority. If we look at authority, what do we see in the word authority? We see author. The idiot basically means that which has the characteristic of the author. But if we look at another word, often authenticity. You see, the it's this the same stem. <clears throat> so 
that another word would, well, there's author, authorizing. You see where the, the word authorizing uh, gives it a, something of a, a legal aspect. The author is authorizing his authentic work. So the, these words all cluster together and interpenetrate each other. So if we take again the word authority, with which I began, <coughs> there's the question of the author who is authorizing his authentic speech. You see, there's a continuity from the speaker who is the author authentically authorizing his own words. <clears throat> now when we speak of authority like that, we can also bring in the word tradition because the author who is authentically authorizing his own authorship <laughs> is handing over what he is authorizing to someone. So authority and tradition go together. But now notice that authority here does not mean you do this or else. That it is no particular sanction. Either you listen or you don't listen. Um, would, would you help? Uh, mm -hmm. It, or would you like to sit here and be a little closer? Why don't you come closer? You see, if we take, if we take the book of Exodus, now when did it become the book of Exodus? Uh, now, the, the Torah uh, are called the five books of Moses, and uh, quite appropriately, um, we know that at the time of Christ himself, Christ refers to the books of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, and the Psalms. <clears throat> but as so did John and Paul. So the, we take these three Jews, and they are following what had already come into place at their time. So let's say the first four or five decades of the first century. So from the year one to let's say uh, the year 54, because I think that's when the first Thessalonians was written by Paul. But you see, up until then, there was not what was really called a Hebrew canon. What are the books of the Old Testament? What, or better, what are the books of Moses? And that took, you see, Moses, if we take a, a major year for him, let's say 1250, 1225, 1250 for the Exodus. <clears throat> you see, the, he didn't write a book. He didn't write a book. Other people wrote books about him or short essays, or 
stories. And these were gradually brought together. Uh, the historians working on the gathering together of the various books of Moses say that Exodus probably came into shape in the 9th century, so from the 900s to the 800s BC. But there, that's something like 300 years after Moses has died. Now, there's another problem uh, with the transmission of texts. We know that there were many different versions of Exodus, just as there were of Genesis, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy starts coming into shape during the uh, 8th century, 800s to 700s BC. So you see, these things take a long time. How did it come about? Well, in the temple worship in Jerusalem, to begin with, what were uh, the things that most expressed the highest reality of God's life amongst us Jews or Hebrews uh, and which would illumine our minds as we're even approaching the Temple Mount. You see, a good number of psalms came into existence so that they could be chanted as people were going from outside Jerusalem for the big high feasts. And so they would be chanting various songs as they were processing up to the temple on the mount. So you see, it, it's a slow gathering together of what was uh, considered to be most fitting to the worship of God, let's say, on the Temple Mount. Uh, there are variations in the Hebrew text and then around, let's say, two, let's say, 300 B.C., there is the enormous shift from just Hebrew texts to Greek texts, what has come to be called the Septuagint. That is, it was a translation done principally in Alexandria in Egypt, um, because so many of the Hebrews who were worshipping had forgotten their Hebrew and were more at home in Greek. So a number of uh, Hebrews in Alexandria uh, started translating all the books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms into Greek. Now, that was for the purpose of, um, since the temple no longer, the temple was far away from a lot of people. You know, to go from um, Nazareth to 
to Jerusalem was, I think, 60 miles. You couldn't go there every day. <coughs> um, the, um, so there was the development of the synagogue for uh, uh, worship on the Sabbath and, uh, and even the weekdays. So the, you see, things had gotten so bad in the Holy Land itself as far as Hebrew is concerned, that for, um, for synagogue worship, they had to have a special book where the Hebrew was written out phonetically so that it could be chanted. Hmm. Um, so actually the Hebrew canon really is only established somewhere around 200 AD. Um, but you know, the, the same problem with the tradition of texts. Are we going to find the author's authentic words or not? But there were a variety of uh, for instance, the book of Jeremiah uh, had a, a number of varieties. There was a short version, there was a long version. And the, uh, uh, so to... Well, my point has been to try to um, de-scripturize scripture. <laughs> So let's bear in mind the, the book, A Great and Holy Reality, is really only comes to life in the liturgy. Now let me give you a central example concerning that. And it's from Scripture. <laughs> and it's from the Acts of the Apostles. I think <clears throat> you'll be familiar with um, the Ethiopian official is coming to Jerusalem to worship. And <clears throat> this is sometime after Christ has died and is risen. And he's in his chariot and he's reading a book the Holy Spirit says to Philip, go to him. So he approaches the carriage and asks the uh, Ethiopian official, who's always referred to as a eunuch. <laughs> Big deal. Uh, <clears throat> but he was a high official. Uh, and um, Philip says to him, uh, uh, what are you reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And the official says, how can I, since I have no one to guide me? Now there is an, an insight into uh, ancient reading <laughs> that uh, we don't pay enough attention to. 
That is, you could not read a book on your own. You needed someone who knew the author's mind to lead you into what the book means. Now, you see, with Luther, how far we got away from that. Every man was his own guide, presumably with the Holy Spirit. Every man is his own guide through anything he reads, particularly scripture. That you read scripture on your own did not exist before Luther. Uh, I'm going to say that was a criminal act of his. It did such damage to, not only to uh, scripture and the church and that, but I'm going to say to education itself. Yeah. Um, how can I understand it if I don't have someone to guide me? And so Philip starts, uh, the official is reading the prophet Isaiah, which in uh, many ways part of it. I think the 53rd chapter is referred to as the uh, gospel in Isaiah. <laughs> but you see the necessity, uh, shall we say, of a meeting of minds over a written text and getting into the written text in order to get into the other, the author's mind. Remember the examples I gave you about how in listening to Mozart or to Bach, we not only, in entering into their music, we're entering into their mind. And with great authors of music, such as Mozart and Bach, we're entering into the life of their soul with God. Um, anything anybody wants me to repeat? I just this is a, like a point of clarification for Fine. me. I think in my past, my history, my education, I the question: How did the books of the Bible get chosen? And the answer given is: Well, they were divinely inspired. True. And as if they were the only ones that were divinely inspired. What I'm hearing you say is they were it came about through this process of from things that were divinely inspired, what became most useful to the people yeah. to enter into God's mind, so yeah. to speak. Well, uh, let's just amplify that a little bit. <clears throat> Take Exodus. Uh, Moses goes up onto the top of the mountain. There's a wild sort of volcanic uh, storm going on. Clouds and lightning and the earth is moving and so you can see rocks would be running down the mountainside and everything of that sort. And he comes down and tells the people of Israel what God has said to him. Well, three or four, five days a week later, what's going to happen with the people of Israel and Moses? Exodus. Well, what we get in Exodus, 
you know, tell us, tell us what went on up there. And, you know, when we're talking about an ancient people, and they're not very ancient, uh, relatively speaking, <coughs> um, memory, memory, uh, they had extraordinarily developed memories. Uh, so that, you see, people would have asked Moses, you know, what did you see? What did you hear? What was going on? And then, and then on top of that, you see, when the whole incident of um, Exodus is finished, and you know Moses goes up twice, the second time he goes up, he takes 70 elders with him up there. And what do they do? They have a feast with God. Communion. <clears throat> now there are 70 of them. So when they come back down, aren't their wives and children going to, you know, it's huge excitement. Tell us about it. Tell us about it. And so the stories are handed on in different families and they're being compared and in some ways edited amongst themselves. <clears throat> Let me give an example that uh, I prize. There is a marvelous book um, published by Time Life. Um, I think it was... I think it was called Humanity, I forget. But it was a picture of people from, pictures of people from all around the world in all different kinds of circumstances. But there was one, and it was a group of people that were called pygmies. These very small, graceful little people. And they're around a fire, and they're sitting in a circle, and there's an old man you can tell all the wrinkles. They're practically naked, um, pot-bellied, and there are children and other people around, and they're all listening to him. And in fact, I think he might even have his finger up <laughs> to make a point. <laughs> Years later, I read a little report about that picture. I think it was taken, uh, written by the man who took the picture. He is the myth man of the people. He's their spiritual expert in the stories that make them to be the people they are. So another way of describing him is he is a, a, a mythical theologian. <clears throat> well, the photographer says that every once in a while the children who were there would stop him and say, no, 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 you left out a sentence. No, no, you changed that word. The children would be correcting him. Now you see how precious these stories of the formation of the people are, even to the children. They knew what he was saying. They were word perfect in it. But they wanted to hear it 
being authorized again, renewed. Uh, and that, that would be true of the, uh, the Greeks, the Egyptians, whatever. Uh, on, um, at the vigil for uh, the Easter vigil, you know, there are the readings of Genesis. We are doing exactly what century after century of uh, Hebrews did in the synagogue or in the temple. There was always the uh, reading of uh, the ritual reading, singing of uh, Genesis. If we're going to be worshiping God, we have to worship him in this world as he formed it and how that is recorded for us and guaranteed for us in the written record. So, you see, the enormous continuity, uh, at least 2,700 years. Uh, well, you can see the... Uh, was that a sufficient comment to the yes, formation? Yes, thank you. Yeah. The, uh, you see, if we, if we take a, a very, very important book in the New Testament, the Epistle to the Hebrews, and the, the church commonly says, uh, written by St. Paul, but we know from the work itself, the Greek is not quite Paul's Greek. And there uh, are other things. You see, authorship in those days didn't mean I wrote every single word of this. Do you think the Pope writes every homily, every anything he says in public, that he writes it himself? No. He wouldn't have time to even get sleep if he had to write all the things he had to write. So authorship meant you could take any writing and if you put your name on it, you were taking responsibility for the truth of that document. How, how many of us have signed a legal paper where we not only didn't write a word of it, we didn't understand any of it, but it was written for us by a lawyer or some administrator or something, and we put our name on it. Huh? So whatever is taught in the epistle to the Hebrews, and there is enormous teaching in it, um, uh, it was accepted as coming from Paul. Almost like lecture notes. Almost like lecture notes. Lecture notes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Except, <laughs> I remember one of my major professors, Father Iopolo, uh, who was an Italian count and sort of regal. <laughs> he was tall and 
and when he became a priest, an oblate of Mary Immaculate, um, he was made confessor to the Queen of Italy at that time, just pre, pre-Second World War. So he was accustomed to things, but because of the war and uh, because of his health, the, uh, his oblate superiors got him out of Italy and Europe uh, to Canada, where he ended up teaching at the University of Ottawa. But when the Germans started taking over Italy, he was um, not only the confessor of the Queen, but he was also a naval chaplain. And he willingly went into a German concentration camp so as to be with his his fellow soldiers. That German camp was later overwhelmed by Russians. And so his health was seriously affected, so somehow they got him to Canada. I once asked him, I said, Father, you were in the German concentration camp, then you were in the taken over by the Russians. I said, what comment do you have on the difference between the Germans and the Russians? And he stopped and he thought, now remember, he's a nobleman and accustomed to court life and everything. And he said, in comparison, the Germans were gentlemen. That should make us shiver. Um, Well, you see, there's another very, very strange thing with the the Hebrew canon. How did the book of Job ever get accepted? Because he was a pagan. He wasn't a Jew. Well, he came to be considered a a righteous pagan. And the teaching in it certainly conforms to everything that is Hebraic in its form of existence. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the formation of Scripture, uh, well, um, well, <laughs> shall I go on with the formation of Scripture? It's very interesting, all this history. If we take Genesis, now, it it has been said, and I think it must continue to be said, the book of Exodus was written by Moses. Now you see, to give it the name of Moses is to take it into a whole series of events of Moses' life with the people coming out of uh, coming out of Egypt and the slavery there into the the desert and and the, the Moses 
well, not so much Moses' interaction with God, but God's actions taking Moses and through Moses the people into what God wants because he is who he is. So the whole life of being a Jew in any of the different periods of the, their existence, you see, is to enter into uh, and cooperate with God in his actions, and his actions are such because of who and what he is. So let's take the first great encounter of um, God and Moses. Unfortunately, it's generally always put Moses' encounter with God. But as we go through the story, you'll see it's God encountering Moses and taking Moses into what and who God is and what he wants. It's the event of the burning bush. Moses, this is before the exodus or anything. Moses is the shepherd and he's out doing different things and he sees a bush on fire that's in the desert and it's hot and it's already. But the amazing thing is the bush is not being consumed. Uh, it should have been setting fire to everything else around it. It wasn't. Uh, it would have been so dry and everything, it should have gone into ashes right away. But no, the bush is there, and it is on fire, but it is not being consumed. <laughs> So Moses goes over and he hears a voice say to him, this is sacred ground, take off your shoes. And so God is beginning to train him. <clears throat> but now you see, Moses is alone with God. How do people know to start talking about, about it amongst themselves? The only person that could have there are only two persons it could have come from, God himself and Moses. So I don't think God would have been appearing elsewhere to the people because then they would have had a story about it. So it had to come from Moses. Uh, I was out in the desert and this is what happened. Now you see, the, the story would be continued by people. And like the little kids in the Time Life photograph, oh, you left out a word, or you changed this, no, no. Uh, isn't it the same thing? Uh, I've done some reading to a child uh, before they go to sleep, which didn't exist when I was a, a child. My parents never read to us. Uh, the housekeeper never read to us. My great-grandmother never read to us. It's time to go to bed. You went to bed. <laughs> uh, it wasn't playtime. Uh, 
you might ask for a glass of water. <laughs> but uh, I can recall reading, and uh, there were other things I wanted to do. So I skipped a page. The child picked it up right away. Oh, no, no, you turned. No, no. You see, we can talk about it as ritual. That is a sacred action that is so important. It must be done completely and exactly in the same way as the original of whatever we're reenacting. That's why nowadays with so many of the priests saying Mass, they have no idea what they're doing. The Mass is an extraordinary action. And the first thing we have to say about it is, it is not our Mass. It does not belong to us. It belongs to God, the Blessed Trinity, in the Church. <clears throat> so like the little kids, you know, you shouldn't be adding that in. Uh, let me give you an example. Brace yourself. A young Paulist at the Newman Center in Berkeley, he's ordained three months, and he's given this sort of wild homily that was coming out of nowhere and going nowhere. Smart elk, kid, who had trouble, I think, blowing his nose and tying his shoelaces. Uh, utterly to be despised. Uh, comes the consecration. These are his exact words. This is a kind of a sort of a symbol of my body. It was at a noon mass. There might have been about 30 people there, but we were regulars. He does that, and what happens, I wasn't a priest then. Practically everybody turns and looks at me, because I'm in a back row, turn and look at me. <laughs> And then he did a valid consecration of the wine. But you see the intrusion of his mind into the mind of the church, which is to be the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is the mind of the Father. He who hears me hears the Father. He who hears you, the apostles, hears me who hears the Father. Uh, um, a little side story on that. I was living in Rome one winter, and uh, I was living in what was called the Casa del Clero, a Renaissance palazzo, the right, uh, the next street over was the Pantheon, the Pantheon was on this side. The Senate was there, San Luigi di Francesi was there, and just over the next street was the uh, Piazza Navona. You were in the heart of Rome. And the, uh, 
most of the priests, well, the priests who were living there were various officials uh, in the Vatican. And uh, some of them were important people. I never asked a question that would have been totally inappropriate to try to find out who and what they were. <laughs> um, I've gone blank. You're in the Vatican? Um, you... Living in the Palazzo? Yes, and this is a follow-up. There was the story of oh, yes. Berkeley. Yes, that's Shocking. it. Thank you. Well, it was the custom that you you came in and there were the big refectory tables in this huge room and you took the first open seat. So I came in and there were about six of these Vatican officials who had put in their morning work. And, you know, they're in their 40s, maybe 50s, and they're already white with fatigue. They've been working so hard. Uh, and so they'd have to have a siesta and then go back to work again. A really, really difficult, demanding life. But they, they saw me sit down and nobody, we never introduced ourselves, but they, oh, we hear that you're from Berkeley. Tell us about Berkeley. <laughs> and I said, you're not going to want to hear what I would say. You, you won't find it acceptable that. So I told them the story about the young Paulist. And this is a sort of a kind of a symbol <laughs> of my body. They all went stiff and started another conversation. It wasn't as if they had hit me. They weren't that impolite. But I realized what was happening. If they took official cognizance of what I had just said, they would have to send somebody to Berkeley to investigate. And uh, they weren't about to get involved in that. <laughs> uh, the, uh, one of them, a Frenchman, and uh, for, we were friendly. I never socialized with any of them. Uh, part of the difficulty was I shouldn't have been in that palazzo because I had no business with the Vatican itself. The reason I was there was a childhood friend of mine was in charge of the building. In fact, he was in charge of all of the finances for those buildings. <laughs> He was, uh, well, he was second in charge under the Cardinal for the patrimony of St. Peter. And uh, he had been a, um, an executive vice president of Merrill Lynch before he went into the priesthood in his early 50s. Uh, he knew what he was doing. Father, were you a priest? Or a I was a priest at that time, oh, okay. yes. I became a priest at 43 never in a seminary, uh, but they just took me in five days, ordained me, and I was back in my classroom. Uh, <laughs> the, in any case, 
this Frenchman and I were rather very friendly, though we never socialized. One morning I had read an article in the Observatory Romano and it was in French and it was uh, about that much print in a box by itself and it was a note written by John Paul II for the 100th anniversary of the uh, um, birth, I guess, the birth of Maurice Blondel, a somewhat controversial uh, thinker in the church at that time. Well, coming down the huge big uh, Renaissance steps in the Plaza, Plaza comes the Frenchman and I'm coming up and we stop to chat and I said, I read this article from the Pope uh, on Maurice Blondel and I said, it is a magnificent study. Somebody could take that and just flesh it out and they'd have a major doctoral work. And he's smiling a little bit. And then I was raving on and the French, the French is so beautiful. And he smiles and he says, yes, the Pope does write very good French. So who wrote the article? He, he couldn't say that he had written it because the Pope had signed it. The Pope had authorized it. It was his statement. But just that little smile, oh, the Pope does write such beautiful French. <laughs> well, while I'm on these stories, to give you a little bit of flavor of well, what I saw of Vatican life, I'm coming down some steps to the, uh, the main entrance that we all used. Um, and there's a group of about five or six priests waiting to take an elevator up. But uh, I'm coming down the steps and one of them looks, who's at the center of everything, looks and sees me and comes towards me. And he says, I hear you're from Berkeley. Gossip, gossip, gossip all over the place. And uh, I said, yes. He said, I'd like to have a meeting with you because I have a couple of seminarians. He was the rector of the seminary, diocesan seminary in Paris. I have some seminarians who want to go to the Graduate Theological Union. And I said, well, I will spare you the, the, the time of meeting and uh, spare you uh, wasted time. If you have seminarians who want to go to study at the Graduate Theological Union, where I'd been teaching for decades, I said, dismiss them immediately. <laughs> and he looked at me. Well, you don't talk to people that way. Uh, and he never approached me again. <laughs> because I'd seen so many people come into Berkeley and uh, a number of them had literally ended up uh, you know, wrecks on the streets of Berkeley. Hmm. Uh, and at that time, the teaching in the GT. So I'm going back 
some 40 years, maybe more. That was just yesterday. <laughs> well, uh, in the spiritual history of mankind, it's not even, it's not even a snap of the fingers long. <laughs> um, but I'd seen so many come and uh, just degenerate. Uh, I think the level of scholarship has improved certainly in the last 10 years. Uh, well, in any case, what time is it, please? It is 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock. 2.01, yes. Yeah. So there are these layers of authoritative, authoritative authors and and it's amazing in the very short sentence that Aquinas puts down that he, he's got them all. <laughs> uh, back to scripture, I want to give you a warning. There are some theologians and they're, they're tending to come out of Steubenville the, and Scott Hahn's uh, great institute on uh, Paul. <laughs> they're tending to want to say that scripture is a sacrament that has never been said in the church. But you see, calling it a sacrament is putting it up with the other seven sacraments. But look at the enormous degeneration of the understanding of the seven sacraments in the church at the present time. So the, uh, totally out of proportion. It is not in the line of authenticity. From God the Father to God the Son to the Apostles, to the bishops, to the priests, to the faithful. And the faithful have to be like the little kids in Africa. No, no. <laughs> Put the word in. I don't know how often I've told this story. That for the Pan-Athenic Festival in Athens, which started in Thebes, and it had the only paved road in... In Greece at the time, it was the sacred way from Thebes to, they would bring new clothing that would have been woven in the previous four years to take the old clothing off the statue of Athena in the Parthenon and dress, clean her up and dress her again in new clothes. And it was the major festival to account for the founding of Athens, and it included uh, three other very important gods for Athens, Zeus, Athena's father, Hercules, the bringer of civilization through his labors, and then Dennis, but he didn't have any temple spot up on top of the Parthenon. He had a little temple down on the lower ground. But it was essential that when they were bringing the clothing and other things that they needed uh, to redress Athena, 
they would come down the sacred way and then they would take a detour to a temple of Dionysius and there would be a ceremony there. <clears throat> and the ceremony could only be carried out by one family from Thebes. Why? Because they were the only family that knew the sacred words that could be used in that ritual. Now, if they couldn't do that stop to worship Dionysius Bacchus and use the sacred language, they couldn't have proceeded up to, the, to do things for Athena. That family was the only family that knew the sacred ritual, but they no longer understood the meaning of the words. But the family was trained generation after generation to repeat these ritual sounds. <laughs> Let's just ask ourselves one question. <clears throat> How many of us would be willing to skip any anything that has to do with Christmas? How many would want to save this little thing or that little thing? Or or at least, let's have a little tree. You know, let's, you know, wouldn't the year sort of fall apart for us if we didn't celebrate? Well, we're no longer celebrating the spirit of the child who is born to us. We're celebrating the spirit of greed. Uh, but l let me stop. <laughs> The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.